Yeah, like housekeeping, <coughs> somebody was rocking a cool flip phone. It was uh, lost at the business store. Really cool flip phone. Basically, he has it. Catch him afterwards. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, beloved, I look forward to saying that. It's a joy to be with you, to open God's word with you this morning. And I am genuinely humbled by this task, but I'm also really heartened because I uh, remember that God's word is living, it's active, it's breathing, and none of us could improve upon it. I would do well just to read it aloud, let the Holy Spirit carry it to you and press it into your hearts. So let's let's pray to that end, shall we? Pray with me. Father in heaven, hallowed be your wonderful and fearful name. We pray that we would be willing hearers of this living word, even now. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. As Pastor T enjoys a uh, well-earned sabbatical, he has entrusted this pulpit to elders and other brothers in the church in a series that I've secretly been calling the Summer of Fear. And as I say it all out, I, I, it sounds like a really bad movie where misguided youth end up in some remote location or set upon by a supernatural evil. And thankfully, that's not what the series is about. We are considering a much more profound, holy, even worshipful fear. That is the fear of the Lord. Last week, our brother Peter opened Deuteronomy for us. We considered how the fear of the Lord is built into the people of God. Fear of the Lord must be taught. It's taught in our homes, it's taught in our congregations. So we're going to continue on that theme this morning in the next book in the Old Testament. So if you were in Deuteronomy, still flip over to Joshua. This morning, we're in Joshua 24. You turn there or scroll there with me now. Joshua chapter 24, and we'll be looking at verses 14 and 15. This is a most poignant moment in old man Joshua's final words to the Israelite people. It's Joshua 24, starting in verses in verse 14. Please follow along as I read. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. May the Lord bless the name of his holy word. I appreciated what our brother Michael did in his preparation for the sermon in Leviticus 
two weeks back, he noted that he had read the entire book of Leviticus, which is no small task. And so I followed his example. He did the same thing in Joshua. I encourage you to do the same thing for a couple of reasons. One, it's God's word. It's a lamp into our feet. It's a light into our path. It does not return void. Two, reading all of Joshua would take a nice chunk out of that Bible reading plan that Pastor George challenged us to. And thirdly, and more specific for this morning, read Joshua because in so we can read the compelling episodes of the story where God fulfills an 800-year-old promise that he made to Abraham. So the first half of Joshua chronicles the, the conquest of the land, the, the miraculous conquering of Canaan. There are episodes there you might be familiar with, such as the walls of Jericho coming down. Or the day that the, the sun stood still so that the army had enough time to vanquish the enemies as God had commanded. The second half is kind of like the reading of the will. The inheritance is distributed to the tribes. And so God's promises are fulfilled. All the tribes are given their inheritance. And I hope to show in, in today's verse that these, this call that Joshua issues is a call for all people, but particularly for husbands and fathers and leaders and leaders. It's a call for these leaders to demonstrate right fear of God by rationally, boldly, and personally choosing to serve the Lord. So let's jump in. The key word in our passage is the word choose. Choose this day. You see it there? Choose this day whom you will serve. Joshua called all the leaders to this place to make fresh vows, renewing the covenant with the God of Israel. Uh, as I was preparing for this, I realized that I wasn't entirely clear on what a covenant was. It's one of those ideas that I feel like I know, but maybe don't know completely. And as I dug into it, I saw some, some depth and beauty that I think we should appreciate. Covenants are willful and perpetual promises. They are characterized both by this initial choice entering the covenant and this sort of continual, ongoing choice to fulfill the promises held in that covenant. This is where a covenant is different from a contract. A contract is a legal agreement, agreement right? It's been signed. It's, it's enforced by outside parties. And if you want out of the contract, there are legal ramifications. If you want out of a covenant, just walk away. Just stop choosing to abide by it. Those who are married in the church probably recognize the two agreements that have entered into it. The marriage license that Laura, my wife, and I signed is a legal document recognized by the District of Columbia. It's a contract. But our marriage covenant was made before God and in the presence of the people, the seal by the laying on of hands and prayer. Contracts are signed. Covenants are sealed. The law enforces contracts. 
those who are sealed under a covenant maintain their promises according to their willingness to do so. Covenants are a personal choice. That's why the agreement we have in our bulletin, I think it's on page six, the church covenant. You see that? Those of us who are members here have chosen to covenant together. If one of us walks away from that covenant, it's a big deal. And the God of the Bible is a God of covenants. He chooses people and nations for blessing and for cursing. His is a covenantal choice. And because he's infinitely powerful and perfectly able to keep his word, no matter what the other party in the covenant does, he's also faithful to do it, regardless of what it costs. So when you think about it, true love is covenantal. It's a choice to uphold the promises made, regardless of the difficulty or opposition. Does this description of covenantal love remind you of anyone? More on him later. Okay, so I can hear some of my reformed brothers and sisters squirming a little bit. Is this guy saying that the choices are up to us? That a man or woman binds God and considers their options and might choose God as the best alternative among a number of candidates? Is that what I'm saying? One part, yes. Over and over, we see that mankind are held responsible for their actions and choices. God has given us this aspect of his image and that he has a will. And so we also have a will. We have a will and we're solely responsible for how we use it. And God is supremely sovereign, working all things together according to his will. So we hold these truths in non-contradictory tension. We should praise God as we marvel at these mysteries in his ways. So that said, let's look at the arguments that Joshua makes in favor of choosing to serve the Lord. And here we find one of the surprising texts, I think, in Scripture. Verse 15. And if it is evil in your eyes, to serve the Lord. Joshua actually said that. He's saying if you hate the idea of serving God, funny, but don't be a hypocrite. This covenant is meant to be kept sincerely and faithfully. Some, some versions of scripture uh, render that phrase as if it doesn't please you to serve the Lord. I think this softer translation borders on a, a dangerously apathetic disposition toward God. It doesn't please me. Joshua is not operating in gray. It's fine. It's yes or no. There are no non-choices. To choose the one God is to reject all other counterfeits. And to not choose God is to actively choose the idols of this fallen world. Bob Dylan understood this truth. You know the song? You gotta serve somebody. <laughs> maybe the devil, maybe the Lord, but you gotta have to serve somebody. Right? <laughs> well, Dylan was right, but he was nasty. <laughs> but he was right. And Joshua is right. 
he wanted to make sure that the leaders couldn't sort of dodge the question or allow space for an answer like, you know, that's good for you. I don't know what's out for you. I'm not exactly sure where I stand at this moment. Joshua did not have a postmodern view of truth or of God. There is no such thing as my truth and your truth. Joshua is not dealing in terms of the relative. There are two ways to live. Pick one, he said. Brothers and sisters, there are two ways to live. Which way have you picked? Because it's not too late to change your mind. That's not all he said. He also appealed to the collective and even recent memory. He presented a rational choice. And so, for those of you who are taking notes and are feeling a bit tense, I'll give you um, the, the quick outline. And we'll be looking at the rational choice to serve the Lord. We'll be looking at the bold choice to serve the Lord. We'll be looking at the personal choice to serve the Lord. Right now, he's appealing to their reason, to their logic. This makes sense. You heard me say that in the text. Now, therefore, okay, I'm pause. The scene preceding this, therefore, right, is what, what we need. We see the beginning of verse 14. Okay. Everything that follows this, therefore, is predicated on the information before the therefore. So if you've ever opened your Bibles and happened to start reading out of therefore, I advise you to stop. Back it up a bit. And that's what we're going to do now. We're going to flip back a few verses and see that Joshua is going to remind the people of just why God is worthy of worship, fear, and devotion. So the scene preceding this therefore in, in Joshua 24 occurs sometime after the distribution of the inheritance. The people have been given their land. They have been established in the promised land. War is over. They are at rest. And Joshua senses that his time on this earth is drawing to a close. So he summons all of the leaders of Israel to Shechem. And there, he recounts the history of the Israelites from the call of Abraham to the fulfillment of those promises that were made 800 years prior in that same exact in Shechem. Turn with me really quick. Genesis 12. Keep your finger in Joshua. We'll only be gone a second. Genesis 12. Let's look at this moment in this land where they were in Shechem. This inheritance they just received, this is when it was first promised. God had called Abram, the name of the time, to leave his country and told him that he would bless him, make his people great, and bless all the families of the earth through him. So look at verse 4. Genesis 12, verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered from the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of 
Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Moab. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And so he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Let's turn back to Joshua 24. Now let's look at verse 1 in Joshua 24. Follow along as I read. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham, Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought them out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt. And you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your land. And you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Gor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Hizrites, Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hittites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent a hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your word or by your bow. I gave you a land which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them, and eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Do you see the signature here? Do you see the conclusion? He made his covenantal promise with Abraham in this same place, in Shechem, some 800 years ago. Now, people of God have seen God's faithfulness come to fruition. What's more, in this recounting of the history, Joshua assumes the mantle of the prophet, and he speaks in the first person as God. You see that in verse 2? Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. The leaders of Israel cannot miss the message. There's no room in this story for anyone to take credit for anything apart from God. Do you see these echoes of God's sovereignty? Midnight man's choices. 
to scan the text. I took, I gave, I believe, I destroyed, I sent. God has done this. If there are any feeling puffed up and entitled as they enjoy the peace and prosperity of the promised land, if anyone is tempted to boast a revisionist history around the campfire, God is saying, this is not your doing. I did this. I can feel Joshua's indignation at the thought that someone might not choose God. He's saying, if if 800-year-old oath-keeping was not enough reason to convince you that he is both powerful and good, how about these? It's rational to choose God, who has every reason to show you justice in the form of holy wrath, but instead extends mercy. It's rational. It's rational to choose the God that makes the way when there is no way. No boats, no problem. Boom, dry land. Need more convincing? Try this. I wouldn't defy him if I were you, because even nature obeys him. Locusts and frogs multiply when the creator speaks. The laws of physics also subject to his bidding. The resonance of trumpets and lifted voices are multiplied into a divine sonic weapon that obliterates a six-foot-thick pulse. Powerful nations before him. The sun stands still. I can't help but hear some sarcasm in his voice. If it's evil in your eyes, what are you thinking? How can you choose anything but this great God? Choose him and do it today. Choosing to serve the Lord makes perfect rational sense. And it's foolish not to. So it's a rational choice to serve the Lord. It's also a bold choice. Joshua's charging the leaders to make a bold decision. And it's public. Hard to do bold things in private. See how those typically go together? Typically, boldness requires a certain public element to it. So what does it look like to serve the Lord, to fear him, to serve him in sincerity and faithfulness? Let's look at the next verse. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. The choice to serve the Lord requires repentance. Turning, turning away from the sin of idolatry and turning toward God. You see that? Put them together. Put away the gods that their fathers serve and serve the Lord. The reference to the gods your fathers serve, I think it's so instructive for us. He's acknowledging the reality that they're upbringing their history, their culture, shapes who they are. It shapes how they think. It shapes what they value. In that regard, I don't think people have changed very much. You've heard the expression, the apple doesn't fall 
very far from the truth. You know, when I consider the strengths and the weaknesses of my own father, it's really no surprise that I echo many of them on both sides. So choosing to serve the Lord might represent a departure from your family. It may come with a great cost. Going public with your faith and repentance may result in being ridiculed, ostracized, disowned, persecuted, or killed. It's a bold choice. And on the flip side, if you were raised by godly and faithful parents, praise the Lord. Scripture is full of exhortations to raise children in the fear of the Lord. Wherever we are called to repent, it will require a bold choice. There's a bit more. Look a bit further down. After Joshua presents the choice, he repeats the charge to repent. But this time with even more specificity. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day when you will serve Whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, we just covered that. That's repenting of, of your of the father, the family, the culture, or of the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Joshua knew that the effects of an idolatrous society are elusive and they're persuasive. The gods practices cultural practices, man-centered values. The Amorites, that was a real and present danger to the people of Israel. It seems that the temptation to assimilate is just as compelling then as it is now. See how this applies to us? The bold choice to serve the Lord sincerely requires repenting of the idolatry of your society, the spirit of the age, postmodern post-truth, post-facts. We are today inundated by idolatrous temptations to worship sex, money, power, comfort. It's a long list that I have not uttered. So this bold choice was meant to distinguish the chosen, set-apart people of God. Believe it. If you read yourself, if you rather rend yourself, or rather, I'm sorry, if you, if you see yourself um, as being somewhat assimilated into society, radical repentance is not easy. If our idolatrous society can't tell you apart from themselves, something is wrong. The Israelites were, if nothing else, a chosen people who are set apart. And this kind of repentance requires a boldness that is willing to accept that persecution from family and from friends. A bold choice requires repentance, maybe costly. A rational choice to serve the Lord. A bold choice to serve the Lastly, a rational choice. Joshua is calling the leaders of Israel to make this personal choice. This is not merely political or religious or cultural rhetoric. Joshua brings it home, literally. At the end of the day, Joshua is saying, 
regardless of what rational or irrational choice y'all make, I have decided to serve the Lord. I will not be swayed by others. My eyes are fixed on the prize. I think it's important to note uh, there's a double-layered promise here. It doesn't say, listen carefully, it doesn't say, as for my house, we will serve the Lord. I looked at the Hebrew as best I could with the help of commentators and translators. I think it's pretty clear. He's saying that he will serve the Lord. And additionally, subsequently, he's promising to lead his household in the ways of the Lord. God will be feared by the people under his care and responsibility in keeping with the covenant that he's making. It's the importance of the head, the leader resolving to serve the Lord. It cannot be overstated. Note that Joshua called all the leaders of Israel to renew their vows. Now, we don't know if there are other non-leader types present at this time. I suppose it's possible that there were some. But nevertheless, Joshua understood that as goes the leader, so goes the house. As goes the captain, so goes the ship. As goes the head, so goes the body. Do you see the gravity of this? You might wonder if this is a vain promise from an old man at the end of his life. How can he make this promise? It's a promise that he would not even be around to see fulfilled. How can he say this? Does the statement suppose by the power of his will that he can guarantee that a bunch of sinners in his house will faithfully walk in the way of the Lord? In a way, yes. For a few reasons. First, his influence is significant. We were told that all the people honored him just as they had Moses. It was a big deal. People followed But I think the more significant reason that he can make this vow is because of the reality of the other party in the covenant. This is a covenant with the promise-keeping God. And he's doing it in the presence of the whole assembly of God's people. He's doing it in the place of covenanting. This is Shechem, where God revealed himself to Abram and made a promise that he kept. I wonder if the petrified remains of the Oak of Morah was close by. This is where Jacob built an altar to the Lord after peacefully parting with Esau. Jacob called the place El Elohe Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. Joshua was fully aware of the gravity of this situation and he chose to fear the Lord. I pray we would have the same boldness and resolve, especially as we rest in the knowledge of the sovereign, powerful Lord. A word to parents. This is not a Father's Day message, but it could be. If you're a leader of a household, I hope you hear the urgency and the gravity of this call. Serve the Lord. You will certainly shape the thinking and course of those under your care. And in God's sovereignty, save them. And I've had this conversation with many friends over the years. Does your faithfulness in walking with the Lord guarantee the salvation of your children? 
is Christ's righteousness that has been imputed to you also passed down through your DNA somehow? No. We do see that our faithfulness matters. It affects those around us. Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. I love the scene. Do you remember the jailer in Acts 16? <laughs> he hears the word. And he brings the word home. The word that was spoken by Paul and Silas. His whole household was converted. That very night. He saved his house, not by his own doing, but by bringing God's word to his people. Bring God's word into your house. Fear the Lord and serve him. He will do the rest. Amen? Let's consider some other practical applications. I found a, a little 3R. Monitor this will call these applications. They are repent, sorry, remember, repent, and resolve. It actually follows the order of the text. First, remember. Make a point to remember God's goodness and remind yourself, your family, your friends, call to mind God's faithfulness as revealed in scripture and as you witnessed it in your this remembering has a wonderful effect on our thinking, on our view of things. There's a secular mental health strategy that aligns with the eternal truth of God's word. 2 Corinthians 10 tells us to take every thought captive, right? Well, psychologists call it cognitive behavior theory, CBT. One of the primary activities of CBT is to identify what are called cognitive distortions. Cognitive distortions are thoughts that negatively alter your understanding of things. They distort your vision, your view of reality. And psychology is on to something here. In the Bible, it's called sin. Sin pollutes, distorts what God created to be pure and upright. Think about the first lie in the, in, the, in, the, in the Garden of Eden. Did the serpent tell Eve that the fruit wasn't actually powerful and important? No. He distorted the truth. He said the fruit was powerful and important. He twisted it so that Eve was thinking about what was being held from her rather than to see God's provision all around her. To see how sin comes and distorts. My wife and our, our two kids live in a, a little house in Deanwood that often feels rather small, especially when there's a little queue for our one bathroom. Many times I have uttered complaints. Oh, need more space. And certainly our comfort level might increase with more square footage. But there's another way to think about our little house. We can remember God's faithfulness and provision. We can thank him for a roof over our heads and a stable residence. 
And an undistorted view of reality says, hasn't God been good to us? Hasn't he been merciful and faithful to his promises that he would provide for all of our needs? Brothers and sisters, actively remind yourself and your family of what God has done. Because we are so prone to ponder, prone to forget, and then we start complaining. Remember what he's done. Until he is. So every day, the choices to fear and follow the Lord become easier, become more automatic, don't they? If you're remembering what God has done, considering his promises, when you have a moment to choose to fear and serve the Lord or not, that choice becomes really easy. Of course, I'm going to follow the Lord. Look what he's done. Look who he is. How can I choose the alternative? This process what I'm describing is about growing more and more holy. This is a means of sanctification. You want to see more and rapid sanctification in your life? Fight to see Christ and remember God. Remember him. It's transforming. Application two. Repent. Are you serving idols when you cross the river? Are there family or cultural values that have been handed down to you that you know don't align with God's priorities? Are you worshiping the idols of the people with whom you dwell? Are you drawn in by the values and priorities of our society? Cling to that selfish individualism of the capitalist American dream. You find your identity in your job and your ability to provide, perhaps like your father did. Do you stingy with your resources? Are you treasuring things in the earth in the name of leaving a legacy for your children? Perhaps you are simply enjoying entitlements and you should be seeking more. Are you withholding mercy from your neighbors and friends? Are you being stingy with your tithe and offering to the church? Because perhaps a sinful, distorted view of things has to be fearing the things of this world instead of fearing and serving God and sincerity and faithfulness. Repent of Remember the God's God. Consider to mercy. And repeat. And if you're thinking, I will, one day soon, I, I know that I should, but I'm enjoying my life now. These idols are not all that bad. I'm still coming to church, reading my Bible. What's the urgency? Joshua certainly thought it was urgent. Verse 14 opens with the word now. Now, therefore, he says, choose this day. This is not a decision that should be slept on. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of repentance. Repent today. Third, resolve. Remember God. Repent of your sin. And resolve to serve Him. Perhaps you, like many in America, 
have a plaque on your wall that says, as for me and my house, maybe it's etched into some wood. If you do, when you go home today, take a hard look at it. Is it true? If you don't have such a sign, could you post that covenant vow with integrity? As for me and my house, we will serve. Could you put that on your wall and mean it? Is the fear of the Lord evident in the way that time and money spent in your house? Does your house show mercy, hospitality? Is God's word revered in your home? Do your neighbors know your house to be different from your home? And if so, do they know why? If you have made a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ, by turning from your sins and being baptized into his body, and you have entered into the new covenant of his life. Thankfully, this covenant is a covenant of grace. This is the only covenant of its kind. If you have chosen Christ, it means God already chose you. And once chosen into the covenant of God's love, you cannot be unchosen. That's, that's because God cannot and will not let his promises be broken. Remember, covenants are signed. Or not signed, rather. They are sealed. The story of the longed-for inheritance of Genesis to Joshua is a picture for us of the inheritance promised in Christ. Look at Ephesians 1, verse 11. Keep your finger there in, in, in Joshua. Go to Ephesians 1, New Testament. See this promised inheritance. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of his. Covenants are sealed. They are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession to the praise of His glory. Earlier in the service, Pastor T. read from Hebrews 10. I wonder if you notice these words. This is the covenant I will make. After these days, declares the Lord, I will put my all on their hearts and write them on their minds. And he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. I pray that you are encouraged to choose again today to honor that covenant. Remember that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Resolve to follow him even as he has resolved. If you've been hearing all this about sin and covenants, choosing God and inheritance in Christ, 
and you know that you have not chosen us. Please hear this. We are so thrilled that you're here. It's part of God's sovereign plan that his holy words should be falling in your ears this morning. So what I hope you've heard, if nothing else, is that there is a God. He is real, he's powerful, and to be feared. If you are still unrepentant and in your sin, then that fear is rightly a terror. God is holy and perfect and will not leave the guilty unpunished. You've also heard that we are all guilty. We're all sinners and have fallen short of God's perfection and therefore deserve his just punishment, his wrath. God is not all wrath. He is also rich in mercy and has made a way for undeserving sinners to draw near to him with no fear of his wrath. And this way is via his son, Jesus. By the way, Jesus is the Aramaic version of the Good name, Joshua, Yeshua. Jesus of Nazareth freely offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. See, God's law required the blood sacrifice. And so Christ, fully God, came to the earth and was incarnate, was born of a human woman. He lived indeed a life as fully as a man. And he lived a perfect life so that he could be a satisfactory sacrifice for God's justice. And he was crucified to death as a substitute for all who would repent and believe. Repent and believe he is the only one. When he died, he didn't stay dead. He was buried. The story of him in there to show that he had power over sin and law and death. God raised Jesus from the dead after three lifeless, breathless days, dead in a tomb. And Jesus is still alive today. He is seated at the right hand of God. He is our inheritance. He is what this book, what the story of the Israelites, is what it's all about. Friend, I would urge you to consider these things and then choose to repent and put your faith in Christ. If you have questions, I'd like someone to pray for you. Please speak with the person who came with their gravity of books you've seen serving this morning. We would love to speak with you. And I pray that they would do that. Before we conclude, there's one more application that I think has particular import for husbands and fathers. I think one of the last things that Joshua taught us is how to die well. It's looking the lyrics of the song is saying I'm being to God's unchanging love. Look at page four in your bulletin. Time is filled with swift transition, not of 
earth unmoved can stand. Build your hopes on things eternal. Hold to God's unchanging thing. Trust in him who will not leave. Whatsoever years may bring, if earthly friends forsake me, still my thirsty to Covet not this world's vain riches that have so rapidly Seek to gain the heavenly treasures they will never pass. When your journey is completed, if to God you have been true, fair and quiet, only your, your enraptured soul will with you. That's just the truth. Joshua Shepherd has had a time. I had the privilege of watching my own father die a lot. In the years and months leading up to his impending death, he often called my brothers and me to his bedside to encourage us, challenge us. I tell you, there's something powerful about promises that we make when you're standing at your father's death. I remember how he charged us to serve the Lord and to take care of him. But I especially remember how his view of this life seemed so different from my own. The trappings of his life had, had lost their luster. He was longing for heaven. He could almost taste the milk and honey of the promised land. He had served the Lord in sincerity and faithfulness and was about to receive his reward. His example guides me still. And I pray that from now until the day that the Lord calls me home, my children will be able to say that their father had chosen to serve the Lord. Are you resolved to serve the Lord? You and your house. Fathers, husbands, leaders, beloved church. Remember what God has done. Repent of your idolatry and choose Christ. Father in heaven, do what we cannot do for ourselves. Transform us by your spirit. And even as we renew our covenant together, remembering body for body, transform us by your spirit. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.